Hi, I'm Marcus. I've been working in the area of ageing and longevity for over 25 years, both here in Australia and right across the world. And I want us to develop new thinking on getting older. Booming the podcast is about unlocking the mysteries of getting older in today's society. It's about understanding the opportunity we have to embrace our new longevity and overcome the challenges that we'll encounter along the way. Yeah, and I believe that life should end with dignity. We're all going to die one day. And so if we've got the opportunity to have our last day as our decision, it might as well be the happiest day of our life because it's the last one. You might as well really make it an absolute cracker. Everett Compton is an evergreen 90-year-old who is currently following his 10-year plan to steer him through to his 100th birthday and beyond. Provided I, my brain's working and I've got a laptop computer and I've got one finger that works, I can write a book. Following a distinguished and varied career, he maintains his heavy involvement in political advocacy, book writing and various professional interests and directorships. Longevity is now one of the greatest crises facing the human race. I believe it's more has more impact than climate change. I'm a passionate climate change supporter, by the way. In this discussion, Everald emphasises the importance he places on being engaged throughout life and what can be done to better embrace longevity. I may wake up every morning at age 90 and say, well, I've woken up, therefore I must be in front. <laughs> you know, so, so why waste this day? Everett Compton, welcome to Booming. Good to be with you, Marcus, and uh, I'm sure there's lots we can talk about, particularly in the longevity space. Absolutely, absolutely. Everett, you've long been engaged politically, engaging with governments of all persuasions and, and all levels particularly at the federal level. How has political engagement changed over the years to where it is now? Well, it's been a a long haul in my personal circumstances. Uh, I started going to Parliament uh, 64 years ago when I went on a youth delegation to meet Sir Robert Menzies. That's a long time ago. And I've been going every year since on various things because when I was a fundraising consultant, I represented clients who were wanting to get projects approved and tax deductibility and all those things. And then I became involved in National Seniors and eventually became chairman of National Seniors. And when that was on, I used to go to Canberra about five times a year and included in that was the work I was doing for the Inland Railway. Now, I made it my business to make friends on both sides of the house, well, all sides of the house, even the minority parties. There are good people in all of them. You're just getting a little bit harder to find them these days, but there's good people. And there was no good going to one side and lobbying. When you went to Parliament, you had to go and see the government and then you'd go and see the opposition and tell them what you're up to because if you want to get things through Parliament or through government, you had to have at least uh, bipartisan approval in the fact the other side wouldn't oppose it or <coughs> or whatever. And then there came time where there were independents in charge and that was added another dimension. And so now when I first went to Parliament, most people who went into Parliament were people who'd been successful in some profession. Uh, in the ALP side, it may have been the trade union movement or... or, or some community organisations and what have you, but people had a background out in society and on the conservative side, people had either been, uh, you know, in business or, or, or agriculture or one another. So people would go into Parliament with some sense, well, look, I've I've done all right in life and I'm now going to contribute to society. Now, some had more lofty ideals than others about that, but nevertheless, th- there was a, a general sense that these were people wanting to enhance democracy. Now, down the years... 
it changed to a professional political mm. class. People made up their mind they were going to be full-time politicians and they would leave university and get a job in a political office somewhere, a staffer for someone, and gradually work their way around that they got nominated for a seat and they ran. And so they became professional people and this being their career, they wanted to perpetuate that career so they were never going to do anything that would land them back on the street again. So you had a political class who revolved around power, that unless you had power you could do nothing, so politics was all about the pursuit of power, and then when you got it you hung on to it, and you went to all sorts of extremes to make sure you hung on to it, and the opposition would go to extremes to get it back. And so now, whereas I had a sense originally that people were there with all sorts of ideals for Australia, now it's all about their careers and their power and... and uh, uh, what they hope the history books might say about them and uh, what have you. And so there's a different rationale around the parliament and there's now a nastiness in the parliament. When I first went to parliament, for instance, uh, Robert Menzies and Ben Chifley were quite obviously good friends and they would meet uh, before every session of parliament and discuss what they were going to let through and what they were going to fight right. about and they'd have a drink. And, and when uh, when Chifley died, Menzies broke down and wept and said he was my friend. Now, you can't imagine that happening in the Parliament, you know, today. So it's gone from that to now sheer nastiness and destruction and digging up of dirt on others, all in the pursuit of power. And when you go to a politician with something now, instead of saying, well, is this a good project, his first thought is, well, if I back this, will I get wedged by the other side? And so you've got to go through a whole rigmarole. So totally different place now to what it was 65 years ago. Everell, you've been very active in your engagement on issues that you're passionate about, and there's a wide range of those. Examples include longevity, which we'll talk about shortly, infrastructure, you've already alluded to the inland rail project, employment and, and other really key issues. You've recently really championed the introduction of voluntary assisted dying in state-based legislation. Why is that issue so important? Well, voluntary assisted dying has always been a thing that uh, I have uh, had an interest in. I've seen aged relatives die terrible deaths and even though they're given good palliative care, you could tell they didn't want to be there. They wanted out, that yeah. we were actually forcing them to stay alive by keeping them in palliative care. And I believe that life should end with dignity. We're all going to die one day. And so if we've got the opportunity to have our last day as our decision as to when it's going to be, and I'm not saying we want to contrive that, but it might as well be the happiest day of our life because it's the last one. You might as well really make it an absolute cracker. And I've said to my family that if I get a terminal illness uh, and legislation allows it, which it will now here in Queensland, uh, uh, that I want to... I will go out by voluntary assisted dying. I've had a good life. I've been around... When I say good life, I mean I've had a, <coughs> a life that I've enjoyed and think I've kicked a few goals and... And uh, I don't want to go out with my family seeing me wasting away and having to sit beside my bed. And, and if I can, I want to have uh, get in a couple of bottles of Scotch whisky and get all my mates in. And if you're a good boy, Marcus, I'll invite <laughs> you, you know, and have a happy ending yeah. to my life. And I believe we're all going to die. We might as well die in the best way. And there's no good sort of uh, wanting to perpetuate life for no reason. And, and so uh, it was an important personal thing in my life. Everett, let's come to longevity. And to start with, at that political level, 
what is needed from political leaders in regards to longevity and the ageing of our population? Several things. One is an acknowledgement that longevity is now one of the greatest crises handling facing the human race. I believe it's more has more impact than climate change. I'm a passionate climate change supporter, by the way. I'm not popping that off. But the fact that the world is ageing and the ageing of the world will go to about 2050 when ageing will reach a peak and it'll start to decline because a lot of old people are going to die. Now, at the moment, most politicians look upon ageing as, a, as a, a painful, a nuisance thing that, you know, it's wrecking the budget, you know, too many people on the pension, too many people going to hospital, you know, too many people in aged care, and it's looked upon as a, as a problem rather than an age of society that we've got to go through and we need to provide for. Yep. So governments are running away from it for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the age pension, I think, costs the budget $60 billion a year at the moment. And, and Polly's are running around saying, how can we reduce that? It was a total waste of time because there's going to be more and more people get up in the pension because their superannuation is going to run out and they're still going to be alive and they're going to be back on the pension. You know, and that's going to get you know more and more significant. And so governments are really not addressing something which can be turned into an asset if we get smart. Moving from that political or governmental level to a societal level, what are your observations about the current societal view of ageing and indeed older people? Have you observed that's changed and evolved over time as the population is continuing to age more? Well, of course, there are different people have different attitudes in society and you can't ever say, well, if there's this one thing is the view of society, it may well be the view of a majority of society. But way back uh, before Federation happened in 1901, and in fact, to be more specific, 1908, when the age pension was brought in, up until that time, if your mum and dad uh, got old, it was your responsibility as a family to keep them. There was no pension the government was going to give them and there was no old people's homes except for for the very, very, very wealthy. And so, uh, you know, you had to you know, handle this all by yourself. And most people accepted, well, I've got to look after mum and dad until I die. And then gradually governments started giving more money and, and people got more money and you were able to put things around. Now, there are too many people who say, well, look, looking after mum really is a pain in the butt. We can't go out, out as much as we want to. We can't travel because poor old mum can't travel and somebody's got to stick behind it. You know, really, be a damn good thing if old mum didn't wake up tomorrow morning. We're not going to murder her, but, you know, it, it would save us, uh, you know, this problem. So uh, we've now got an attitude where where people's lives are being altered. We now have an attitude too where younger people haven't got much money want mum to die in a hurry because she's got a property worth some down. If they get it, they can pay off their mortgage. And, and, and there's all sorts of attitudes that run through society and the cost of ageing, if you're going into nursing homes and you know whatever, you sort of worry some people. So the attitudes towards ageing is getting a bit more hostile than they were in my, in my earlier years. I believe we need in society you know, a, a, a couple of things. One is an attitude that... When people get old, we've got to enable them uh, to have a good life, and I would hope that every aged care institution in Australia, and I know that you, you, you've been experimenting with this, that every aged care institution in Australia would have in it somebody called an enabler, 
whose job was to go around and sit down with everyone and say, well, now, what did you do in your life and what did you want to do in your life that you never did and what skills have you got and whatever. Now, we're going to find some way for you to use these skills even if uh, even if you're in bed and then. I mean, I, I love writing books. And look, if I'm in a nursing home and I hope I have a jolly good heart attack before I am, not, you know, not, not, that's just a plain statement, you know, of my own, the facts of the matter are that uh, provided I, my brain's working and I've got a laptop computer and I've got one finger that works, I can write a book, you know, and, and we've got to be in Carantetta saying, let poor our level sit there and we'll get somebody in to s put a concert on for the plays every so often. And so people have got to be given a to do some particularly things yep. they've never done before in their life. So everyone is there, whether they're in a nursing home or whether they're being looked after by their family, they're being enabled to live rather than being prepared to die. Everell, you also referred earlier to the approach from, from government and indeed from all aspects of society in regards to our ageing population should be to better harness this resource of, of older people across our community. One area, obviously, is the workplace. What should be the approach from employers and, and different types of organisations to that older workforce and, and in order to better realise the value of, of older workers? I know some employers, a minority of them, who when people are reaching this retirement age, they sit down with them and say, now, look, you're, you're reaching the retirement age. Now, we want to help you with this. Now, if you want to go fishing and have a good life and get around the world and hit the nightclubs of Paris, you know, whatever, <laughs> we will help you prepare so that you get the best benefits you can and you can go off and do that and and, and uh, we'll be your friends. But if you want to do stay with us, we're happy to have a talk with you about how you might stay and, and, and in what role. You can't be the CEO anymore, but we can give you a role in some way where... Where, where, where you're a mentor to younger people in the show or you look after certain customers for us who need goodwill and experience that you've got. And if you want to work one day, two days, three days, whatever, we will try and create a... Where you can stay with us. We're not going to put you out on the road. Now, too many employers, you know, put the elderly out on the road and they got this myth that the elderly is stopping a young person from getting a job and I found that's nonsense because the sort of skills that a person has at 67 quite different to the ones that somebody's got at 20 and you're talking about two different roles sure. and now all that stuff and give young people a job is emotional nonsense and so uh, but even if a society puts someone out on the street and says you're out you're gone if an employer does I mean <clears throat> well then it's up to governments in my view to find the opportunity for those people to get part-time work Part, partly in that spirit Everald I want to focus on yourself for for a bit here because you are a shining example of thriving through later life so what's occupying your time at the moment where what are your involvements and and pursuits at the moment i do several things first of all i have a 10-year plan of what i'm going to achieve between now and 100 and i totally intend to implement that 10-year and it covers all facets of my life but in the main i'm staying involved in the in, in advocacy of longevity, at the present time, I'm an associate professor at the University of Queensland. I, previous to that, I was an associate professor at Queensland University of Technology in the area of longevity, advising in the area of longevity. I hope I can keep that up with universities and whoever whoever wants me. I'm, I'm still on the boards of a couple of companies, and and I'm on the chair of charitable organisation and. 
And so, you know, I've, I'm trying to have a about now. I've got to manage my time because I can't go as fast as I used to. But I want to have enough broad things in my life that it keeps my brain alive and active. And I don't think that's extraordinary. You've got to make up your mind you're going to do it. Errol, in terms of your ability to adapt and learn new things, how do you think you've been able to adapt and, and evolve? What's been the secret for you to do that so successfully? Well, you've got to discipline yourself, uh, you know, to do it. And I now spend a lot of time seeing if there's new ways that I can do things. Nothing worse than a bloke who says, look, uh, I want to do something, but I want to do it the way I did it back in 1950. I mean, there's nothing nothing more ridiculous than that. So I think all every day you've got to look at, are there new ways of of doing things? There, there has always got to be a better way than the one there is because you're in, even if an idea is good, you're in a world that's changing and the world might be going to leave your great idea behind, you know. And so <laughs> it's a discipline that every one of us, uh, you know, has to work with. And, and things will arise too in life where even though I've got this 10 years plan, I'm sure that some cause will arise in, in the middle of all that where I've got to say to myself, now, look, I didn't plan for this cause, but this issue is vitally important and I think I'm going to have to do that, then I've got to say, well, okay, what am I going to get rid of out of my life to enable me to do things? So it always be important. But there's nothing worse. I mean, I, I used to believe when I was a young bloke, if there was an obstacle in the road, you put your head down and you battered it down like a battering ram and went through like Napoleon on his way to Moscow sort of thing. <laughs> you, you just charged your way through. Now I look uh, for ways around the problem without compromising the facts. I say to myself, there's got to be a better way to achieve this than bashing my head through that wall. Sure. And, and so you try to you try to adapt, you know. Just, and too many people don't and have rigid things and rigid policies. One of the great things wrong with the Commonwealth public servants is that you know, they have these rigid policies and there's no humanity in it. And you know, and you're not a good public servant unless you've got 50 files on your desk that you're. You initial and pass on to somebody else who's got fifty files on their desk, and you've got to, you know, somewhere or other, you've got to get out of all that routine and and nonsense. But part of the excitement of life, I think, is is, is when you get up each day to say, well, look, there's going to be something that'll happen today that I wasn't aware of. It might not be tragic, but something will arise, and, and so you've got to say to yourself, well, this is about to bugger up my day, and how am I going to handle it? And and, and yeah. I think as long as you don't have a heart attack worrying about it, you're going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> and a bottle of scotch handy. Yeah, exactly. And single malt too. <laughs> Errol, you're highly engaged. What benefits do you derive from that engagement? Well, the alternative to being engaged, in my view, is to be dead or bored. I'm engaged because I might wake up every morning at age 90 and say, well, I've woken up, therefore I must be in front. <laughs> you know, so, so why waste this day? Why waste this day? I'm sitting down and... And having my family say, oh, Everett, you know, you're 90, you must rest, old son. It's a terrible way. The worst thing I believe you can say to oldies is, look, you've worked hard all your life, you've got to rest. I mean, that that's one of the one of the big problems, uh, one of the reasons why families have this problem with an ageing parent. They don't give the, that ageing parent things to do. They think they've got to look after them because they're old and what they're doing is boring them to tears and killing their life. And, and so, you know, I, I just think that um, life is to be lived and, and, and while you've got the opportunity to live it, uh, uh, you do so and you live every day 
as if it was your last day on earth, not that you're sitting down thinking, well, this is my last day on earth, but to say to yourself, well, if I do happen to go out at the end of today, it hasn't been a bad old day that I went out on, and not that you're round to ponder the result at that point. But, <laughs> yeah, but, but I think uh, you're either living or you're dying. You just touched on, the, again, that, that family aspect. How has your role in your family evolved over over time, and how has the role family plays for you changed as well? Well, I've become more aware of my family and become more loving of my family as the years have gone by, and I reject some of the years where I neglected them because I was pushing my career real hard, and my family now need more to me than ever I did. Not that I'm getting nostalgic with old age, rather than I sh- the things I'm doing now with my family I should have been doing all my life, and I've you know, I've left it a bit late, and, and my family react the same way. Uh, they, they're aware that uh, I'm, I'm active and they don't have to treat me as if I'm old, and when we go out on excursions, they don't say to me, Daddy, can you walk down the road? Are you feeling all right? Or can you go up these stairs? Or, Daddy, you, do you need to go home and have a rest? I mean, they're aware of the fact that, uh, A, I can do most things, but, B, they know that if I do feel weary, I'll tell them. And so, you know, we have a, you know, we have a, you know, an understanding. So I think that our family life evolves and should evolve like everything else in our life that we, 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 we get to input. And my family is, is important, is the most important thing in my life. But that doesn't mean I spend all my time running around my family. But in the scale of priorities, when priorities crop up, my family is number one. Sure. And, and I wish I'd done that years and years ago. What's your advice for families to have the more difficult conversations? So we talked previously about the issue of end of life. That's an example. There's other circumstances that evolve through later life and for older family members. How can those more sensitive more difficult conversations be be more easily had? Well, I try to have not to have... I think if you have lots of conversations, you don't have many difficult ones. You only have difficult ones if they're generally preceded by a, a lot of silence. And see, mm. all the big decisions in my life I've discussed with my family, like when I was going to sell the business I ran for years, when I'm when we Helen and I prepared our wills, we consulted with the family when we filled out a health care directive saying we want out under these circumstances. You discuss them with your family. I discuss with my family members their goals and what they want to achieve and what role can I play in that without being an overbearing old grandfather that's sticking his nose in where he shouldn't. <laughs> and so I take as much interest in what plans my family got ahead as I've got my own. And then, of course, you adjust your life to make sure that you do that. And you're fitting, I mean... Uh, there's 18 in my immediate family of you know children, grandchildren, 18, and I got to make it my business that you know when's the last time I spoke to each one of the 18, and when did you know do something for them, and when did they chat with me? Because you can easily sort of you know get involved in those closest to you, and then you suddenly say, well hell, I haven't spoken to little Billy there for a hell of a long time. Better get on the job, and so I, I think again. Without being a robot, you've got to manage how you do it and make sure that you don't have any families feeling that they're on the outer. Yep. You've also alluded to church. How has your role with the church and indeed the the role church plays in your life evolved and obviously faith in that regard as well? Changing dramatically. I mean, I, I, I was, my mother was a fundamentalist Christian. My father didn't go to church much. My mother, 
and, and we evolved through the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, and now into the Uniting Church when the Presbyterian Church united with the Methodists and the congregation. I've been going to church 90 years, and it was a big role in my life. Now, gradually, all the fundamentalism of the faith started becoming unrealistic to me and not really what Christianity was all about. And so while I'm an elder for life in the Uniting Church of Australia, they made me an elder for life, the National Assembly, I'm now less involved in, in churches. Now, I go to church every Sunday as a discipline and I spend my time in church pondering my life and what I should be doing and not doing. And instead of following all the dogmas of the church, which, which I now almost totally reject, I simply have this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who uh, so he's the role model of my life. And, and, and I try to walk with him to create a better world. And that's how I'm going to be. Avril, you alluded to the fact you've got a fourth book uh, underway. Can you give us a sneak peek as to what that book is about? Well, it's called it's called uh, Catching the Linville Train. I went out to Linville for my 90th birthday as I did my walk. That's where I started school 85 years ago, a little town in the Brisbane River Valley. And, and uh, it's about the 30 great historical events that affected my life and some of whom I had a role in. And I've got a chapter about each of those. Then I've got a chapter about cha- 20 chapters about famous people I work with and what they taught me and what I learned. Then I've got a, 20 chapters about all the historic places I visited that told me about how humanity grew and how this affected my life. Sounds like a great read, and we can expect that to be available well, early I, next I was going to try and do it before Christmas, but. There's all sorts of, now that COVID's over, I want to do a bit of travelling to see my family around the world. So I might put it out for Easter next year, but I'm putting a lot of work on I've actually written 81 chapters. I'm now editing them. So it's on there, 76,000 words as at this morning. Probably get to about 85,000. And it'll be out sometime early next year. We look forward to it. Everald, three quick questions to conclude our, our yeah. conversation. The first one, if you could talk to yourself 20 years ago, what's the one piece of advice you would give? The thing that I would say to people is whenever there is a problem that arises, to sit down and look at the world and say, how can this be solved? What is the solution to this and what role can I play in it? And and, uh, rather than allow world events to dictate to me or, you know, whatever, I think we've got to say, well, there's got to be some role I can play in sorting this thing out. Next question, what is the greatest thing about getting older? Well, you've got a lot of experience and hopefully that brings you a lot of wisdom. That depends on how you use your experience and what you define as wisdom. Uh, is it the wisdom to make yourself a hell of a lot of money or is it the wisdom to, wisdom to make yourself more famous? Or is it that you just want to say to the world, say, well, I understand now this world a bit better and I want to use my wisdom in more creative ways than I ever did. But I suppose it's your life's experience and how you want to expand that experience and how you still want to learn things. There's no such thing as saying, I'm old and I can't learn anymore. Every day I reckon there are things I can learn. If I don't do it, well, I'm not worth keeping alive. Stop feeding me. And, and so I think that's the, that, that's the most important thing. Brilliant. Final question. One thing you wish for in your future? Well... I would hope for a peaceful world. I don't think that's going to be events like Ukraine, Afghanistan before that, Iraq before that, keep appearing. 
I would hope for a peaceful world, I don't think it's going to happen, but I do believe that in my society, instead of me saying, well, how do we stop you, I want to say to myself, how in the suburb of Aspley do I live? Do we have more harmony in Aspley? Do we have less divisiveness? Do we all get to know one another? We, down in Linville, where I was born, I knew everybody in town. I don't know everybody in Aspley. Half the time, you walk down the street, you can't even recognise your neighbours. And so I would hope that whereas we can't achieve peace in the world, I could make my local community a more cohesive community. And if we could have millions of towns across the world that are peaceful, we might achieve peace. Indeed, indeed. Errol Compton, it's been an absolutely enlightening discussion. Thank you for sharing your insights and your inspiration. Well, thank you, Marcus, for talking with me and all the best in in all the work you are doing in the whole field of longevity and aged care. I think we can kick a goal or two of that, but great to talk to you. Terrific, mate. Great to have a chat with Everald, who certainly reinforced that ageing is not what it used to be and that we have the potential to really embrace our increased longevity and embrace new thinking on getting older. He rightly promoted the need to consider all aspects of our life, work, family, our interests, and nurture all these aspects as part of our approach to ageing better. To access more resources on your planning and consideration of all aspects of your new thinking on getting older, please go to the Booming website, booming.net.au